to be honest with you. I was already up here dancing earlier, so I had got it out of my system because I was like, that is such a good beat. And it's such a great way to kick off this brand new series that's super excited about called Soul Detox. And this idea of soul detox really is, um, I don't know about you, but if you kind of hit pause for a moment and you just kind of step back, just remind you where we've been. In early 2019, the world sort of looked okay. We were working through some stuff, but we were moving. And then out of nowhere, it kind of just, the wheels fell off. And then the doors fell off. And then the car just completely collapsed. Culturally, societally, all the challenges, and all of a sudden our lives were slammed and our heads hit the wheel. We're trying to make sense of where are we, what are we doing, we're losing people, we're losing time, we're losing life, we're adjusting to work, and this pandemic keeps rolling along and and becomes like Groundhog Day every single day of our lives. Then other things are bubbling up societally that we're finally dealing with, and then in the midst of all of that, we kind of make it through a couple years where we've navigated political, racial, kind of health crisis, all these different tensions that we're trying to work through as a nation, and then, and each year kind of says, all right, this is going to be the year, and then just a few months ago, it's like, no, actually, no, let's have a European war, right? And then you watch the news this week, and, and the kind of the big thing was that Uh, Russia had released an intercontinental ballistic missile test dubbed Satan, right? And you're just like, that seems appropriate. Just, it seems appropriate for this year. And that's just the world happening around us. And I don't know about you, but watching the news is stress-inducing. Like, it should come with a warning label at the bottom of any news. Like, watching this may cause anxiety It may cause an impulse to build a bunker. It may, you know, like you may pull all your money out and sit it underneath. I like, I mean, this world seems a little crazy. And part of it is, is the world is crazy. But the other part is that it's not just that we're living during strange times. It's that this moment is very strange in human history. Not the last two years, but really the last 10 years. Because never in human history has there ever been a global population that could literally be affected and and know the news of a different people living on the other side of the planet. Think about it. Something can happen today in Ukraine. um, And it could be on your phones by the end of the service if it happened right now. It's instantaneous. A hundred years ago, if you were living, you didn't know what happened on the other side of the world. Most likely, candidly, 100 years ago, you didn't know the countries on the other side of the world. You never met anyone there. You couldn't travel there easily. But there is no place on planet Earth that you can't get to in about a day today. And we can forget how interconnected our world is. And all of that interconnectedness, all of that instantness, all of the kind of sensationalism that's also the economic engine underneath it that makes money, quite frankly, on inducing anxiety and fear and negativity. All those things are the world that you and I live in today. And by nature, I would argue that in some ways, if you spend enough time in a toxic environment, it eventually gets inside of you. And that's just the world. Let's talk about your world and my world. 
Because in the midst of all of that, we have email that people constantly are sending with, oh, this just to take a, it's just a quick question. Well, it's a quick question for them to type, but it's three hours of digging into it for you to answer, right? And if the email's not fast enough for them, as if somehow we can respond to the, to the surge that constantly is flooding apart now, right? There is text message, which has become the new email form, which is quite honestly one of the most frustrating things on planet Earth, that people, if they email you, they can't get you, they text you. And it's like, hey, I don't know if you noticed, I didn't respond to your email yet because I haven't had a chance. So texting me is not actually helping me, right? Um, and so you've got the text messaging thing, and you've got all of the social media streams and feeds, and if you're going to try to keep up and be relevant or build a brand or whatever you want to call it, right? There's all these different worlds that you have to inhabit and respond to and keep up with and make sure you're cultivating the right image. It's exhausting. And I would say it's not just the world, but it's also your world and my world that sometimes seeps and creeps into our soul. And over the next month, what we want to do is kind of intentionally say, you know what, let's detox a little bit from the last couple years we've been living in and living through. And get some of that stuff out and become aware of some of it that's in there. And the one I want to look at today is one of those that I'm going to give it a broad title because it, it can be labeled a lot of different things. It's this general sense of restlessness. I'm not being able to relax. Not being able to calm down. The anxiety, the worry, the constant like hum where it's just... The background noise. I don't know if you ever have a noise, if you use noise machines, but we use noise machines in our home. And we can walk in, I can pick my son up out of the crib, and you know, the noise machine's going on, and for a, a little while, I won't even notice it. And then I'll catch myself being like, why does it feel so like noisy in here? And then I'm like, oh, I forgot to turn off the noise machine. And it's when I turn it off that I'm finally like, oh, whew, man, that thing was annoying. Right? Like it's helpful at night to cover up the noise. But we have to create noise machines to cover up the other noises in our lives. And what this is about is, hey, let's learn how to turn off the noise machine and turn down the noise. And this restlessness is one of the first things that I think you and I can benefit from detoxing from. And while that term has a lot of different meanings I recognize on the surface that I can't give you practices that's going to address all of the things. So what I want to do today is <clears throat> take you to a brilliant passage, one of the most famous Old Testament writings. And in the midst of this famous Old Testament kind of section, passage, and poem, I actually want to show you two practices, and then I want to give you the deepest insight that this poem has. This one that actually can speak to you no matter where you are. That is even more powerful than the two practices that are present in the passage. Um, if you have the Encounter Church app, we've preloaded it for you. You'll find this already there for you to take notes on. Um, but the passage is Psalm 23. And it's one that you've heard before. It's one that is probably one of the most poetically beautiful sections in the Old Testament. It reads like this. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's like such a beautiful, beautiful song. Psalm 23 is part of a grander collection of psalms, which were the songbook of ancient Israel. It was written by David, who was the most prolific songwriter in the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. And so David writes this psalm, and you can kind of, if you know a little bit about David, he was a shepherd. And he wrote this psalm, and he pulls off so much of the imagery that was so intimately kind of embedded in his heart and his mind because he had shepherded for all of his adult years. That's what he did. He took care of his family's sheep and goats. But what most of us can miss in this passage is that David doesn't write Psalm 23 while sitting in the fields looking over the sheep. He doesn't write Psalm 23 on the beaches of some tropical paradise, sipping his cocktail, watching the waves crash in. Even though, when you read it, it has this very peaceful vibe to it. Now, scholars believe that David writes this specific song in his middle age years. Specifically during the time period in his middle age years where things got the darkest. See, David was the second king of Israel, but he was the first great king of Israel. He was loved. He had built this great empire. He was a phenomenal warrior, an incredible songwriter. But he wasn't always the best dad. In fact, he allowed some things to play out in his house, things that he did not address, that eventually grew into a cancer that began to destroy his family. Because he lacked the leadership to step in and lead in this one area when he led in so many other areas. This continued to fester until one of his children specifically started to hate his father. Because he would look at David and he's like, you can lead all these other places. You can defeat all these other giants, but you can't deal with this one thing in our home. I mean, we know what that's like. It's one thing to be in the office and tell people, command them what to do dish out the kind of, here's what, you know, delegate, 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 delegate. And you pay them. And they have to listen to you. And then you go home. And you tell your son or your daughter something. And they look at you and they say, no. And you can't fire them. You can't demote them. You can't remove vacation pay. You can't write them up on a report. They reveal all of your powerlessness. They reveal all of your ignorance because you don't know what to do with that tiny little human who's looking back at you who just pulled the rug out from underneath your feet. And what do most of us do in moments where we feel powerless? We check out. 
And this is what David does. He checks out. And then eventually, what he checked out of checks back into his life through the son named Absalom. Absalom, through the years, is building this group of people and nurturing wounds and festering frustrations to the point that eventually Absalom forms a coup and takes over the government. And now his, da- now his dad, David, who loved his son, Absalom, is now running for his life along with his remaining few servants. And they're fleeing Absalom and his army who's now taken over the government. And it's in that moment of his heartbreak over the loss of his kingdom and the realization over the loss of his son that he writes Psalm 23. And I think while what he writes is really good, and we're going to jump into that, I think we're, we'd be amiss if we rush into exactly what he said and not paying attention to what he did. David, in the midst of one of his greatest heartbreaks in life, takes a moment when he finally gets into that tent where he's finally able to rest for the evening after fleeing his son. And what does he do? He writes Psalm 23. And this is the first and essential practice for us detoxing the restlessness out of our soul. We have a tendency to think that we can repress the thoughts inside of our mind, right? Like if you ever tried to not think about a white elephant, it doesn't work. Try to not think about a white elephant. Tell your brain, I will not think about a white elephant. And what do you do? You think about a white elephant. You cannot repress thoughts. That does not work. And a lot of times, we lay hostage at night in our beds with our heads on the pillow trying to wrestle thoughts that we cannot win against because we're playing them on their field and in their game. And you don't win because you can't repress. And most of us, right, we will eventually realize that. And that's where some of us find things like Netflix and alcohol and pills and gaming as a release because we, we're trying to escape the pressure that those thoughts bring to us. And what does David do? He doesn't pull out PlayStation, fill in the blank. He doesn't open up and start scrolling BuzzFeed. He doesn't binge watch whatever it happens to be on whatever streaming service. No, he sits down and he replaces his thoughts because the human mind Contrary to common belief that there is a thing called multitasking, that is not biologically, neurologically possible. We can't multitask. We may switch very fast back and forth, but our brains cannot do two things at once. And so we can only do one thing. And David, intuitively, because of the spiritual discipline of journaling and reflecting and meditating, intentionally writes Psalm 23 to replace the thoughts, not try to repress the thoughts that he was dealing with at the time. All of a sudden, Psalm 23 has a whole different vibe when you understand the pressure he's sitting in when he writes it. This is not relaxing little junior David looking at sheep, bang, in some beautiful field setting. 
This is him wondering, am I going to die? And is my son going to be the one that kills me? All the regret of how he neglected that situation and how he allowed that seed to grow, all of that is piling on him. And he replaces, not represses. But David starts to write. He pulls out of this richness. David knows what a good shepherd looks like. And good shepherds had some primary job kind of responsibilities. They were to feed, they were to water, and they were to protect the sheep. I mean, a good shepherd, and this is something that Jesus will play off later um, when he's teaching, a good shepherd actually will lay down their life for the sheep. And it's actually literal. You see, at, I don't know if you've ever spent a lot of time with sheep, but they taste good, and they wear comfortably, right? I mean, so like they have two things working against them. Literally, their insides are helpful for us, and their outsides are helpful for us. So, and they have no fangs. They have no little claws, right? Like they look cute and cuddly. Like they're not scary. No one's ever said, man, oh my goodness, scariest day ever. What happened? Oh my goodness, I was walking through this field and I came up on a whole herd of sheep. I thought my life was going to be over. No, you'd be like, meh, right? Like, meh. I mean, like, it's just, they're cute. We sing the songs to our kids, right? Mary had a little lamb. And so sheep are safe and they're stupid. They kind of are. That's not mean. That's just calling it for what it is. They're not, they're not passing a lot of really sharp end-of-the-year tests, okay? And that's not what they're there for. And so sheep require a lot of guidance and leadership. And David knew that. And so at night, um, because sheep will wander, the, a good shepherd would literally build a wall of rocks, use kind of the natural habitat to kind of box the sheep in. And then they would lay in the one opening that was remaining because they were the gate. So they would physically become the gate for the sheep. So the sheep couldn't get out without going through them and a predator couldn't get in without going through them too. Sheep, I said, were stupid, right? And so one of the things that would happen is sheep, like we, require water. And so sheep would drink from streams. But if the stream was moving fast and they're, you know, kind of had the, the, the hairstyle going on and they're a little poofy, the water would start to absorb into their hair. And, and if the stream was moving fast and the water kept absorbing while they're drinking, completely unaware that it's happening, then they would fall in and they would get swept off. They'd be top heavy. So this is why you see the quiet waters because David's literally referring to what a shepherd would do. They would take rocks and they would build a little safe harbor in a stream where the water would stop. And so the water would kind of backfill and it would be this kind of quiet water in the midst of a rushing stream so that sheep could drink from the water. And if they still fell in, they didn't get rushed off down the stream. And the sheep would be led to green pastures. David knew that a good shepherd would intentionally take the sheep to the place where food could be found. And that meant that you had to guide them and lead them from place A to place B. And if you've ever had to lead a group of toddlers anywhere, you have a little bit of a sense for what it's like to lead sheep somewhere. This is why you see in shepherding cultures today the use of dogs. Because sheep tend to wander. They tend to scatter. And so David is like, the Lord is my shepherd. 
It's like, oh my goodness, I was a good shepherd to the sheep when I was young, and God is like my shepherd, personal. He's like, I, my sheep were never in want. He's having this realization that if I was a good shepherd and I'm just me, then clearly like God would be even better. And so he's like, he leads me and restores my soul and he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Like he knows the path. The shepherd knows the path to take to get from point A to point B. And then he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like those scary places that you would take the sheep through where predators could be lurking, where danger could be there and present. And David's not writing this as some imagery. He's writing this literally in the midst of his own personal valley of shadow of death. He's fleeing people who are trying to take his life. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. Those were the protective, guiding, corrective devices the shepherd had. He's like, God, you are so intimately aware in directing my steps and protecting me, even though I walk through the shadow in the valley of death. And then he points to this central thing that I think is really critical. If you notice, he's walking methodically through all the things that God is doing for him. He's walking through all the intentional ways God has directed him. He's focusing on the what is. What is, is that he has been fed and he's been provided for, that he has all that he needs. And even in the midst of the strength of reflecting of, oh, I'm in my middle ages and God is taking care of me and he's provided for me every single day in the midst of all the things I've walked through. And then he turns in that place of strength to, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He's like, God, I'm in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not in the valley of death. Absalom hasn't gotten me. I was able to flee. Because what happens in the midst of restlessness is what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. What if not, what if, what if. You know, I mean, anybody know what what ifs are like? Anybody know what it's like to live with the what ifs that bubble up? And what David does is he focuses on the what is. Not if, <coughs> sorry, some of you thought it was magical because I just pulled a water bottle up on television. Um, and so David's understanding of what is gives him the strength to conquer the what ifs. And these two practices, right, the intentional replacing, not repressing, and the focusing on the what is, not the what if, are the two practices <clears throat> that David does for soul detox with the restlessness. But I recognize, like I said, that restlessness covers a full gamut. And so I want to give you the thing that David does that's the most powerful thing. It's not a practice. It's actually something better than something that's a practice. It's not a process. David's already given us a process. <clears throat> and to get you there, I want to take you to one of the most exciting things in the 1850s. This guy. He was an immigrant who traveled to America who was a little bit more than five foot tall. 
He <clears throat> was um, pretty physically athletic, but there was something special when he stood on a tightrope. He could walk across rope like he was a bird. He was blonde hair, blue eyes, and he eventually developed the nickname Blondini because he was flamboyant and bold and big. And this is around the 1850s that he gets this grand idea to do something that no one had ever done, which is the tightrope walk across Niagara Falls, which even today would be quite an incredible feat. Because the winds whipping underneath Niagara Falls gush up at roughly around 70 to 80 miles per hour. He constructs a rope that's about two inches thick. He figures out a way, in a very terrifying way, of suspending a rope across Niagara Falls from the American to the Canadian side. And he announces to the world that he's going to tightrope walk from America to Canada across Niagara Falls. Well, naturally, there was not YouTube back then, so it was easy to gather a crowd. And so people were attracted because everyone thought they were going to watch this guy fall. The roughly 200 feet he was suspended above Niagara Falls. And they show up, and Blondini arrives in all his flamboyantness. This is actually a picture from that day, um, 1850 picture, so not the latest iPhone. Okay, so not exactly the best shot. Um, He has a 26-foot-long pole. And he walks the 1,300 roughly feet from Canada to U.S., U.S., Canada. He goes from U.S. to Canada. On the other side is someone waiting with a glass of wine. He chugs it, turns around, and promptly walks back across. And people are losing their mind because holy moly, Blondini. Blondini was flamboyant, and so he knew he knew how to kind of build the crowd up. And so he announced he was going to come back and do even crazier things. And so these were some of the things that were captured in his second version. He walks across completely blindfolded. Not just blindfolded, but to really sell it, right? I'm going to cover my entire body so I can see nothing. He dangles from the middle of the rope, which, by the way, this was twine. This is not steel. The rope would dip as he walked towards the center of Niagara Falls. And he would dangle over it. He would do headstands while standing on it. And and naturally, he's a great showman. He's so good, in fact, that eventually Millard Fillmore, who's the president during the time period in the 1850s when Blondini is doing this, travels to Niagara Falls to watch it. Imagine how good you have to be and how big of a celebrity you have to be for the President of the United States to travel in the 1850s from D.C. all the way up to the Canadian border. And he does. Why? To watch this. Here is another example of what he did when Fillmore's there. He takes an oven out into the middle, balances the oven with his foot on the twine rope, and prepares an omelet that he cooks while balancing, then takes the omelet that he has fully cooked right here. This is a drawing of what was going on. He lowers the omelet to the mate of the mist boat that is sitting underneath him and allows someone to eat the omelet. So this is Blondini. And one of his craziest things, at this point, people believe it's possible to do anything, is he says... Who believes I can put someone on my back and walk across 
And ah, yeah, it's like, of course you can. You just made an omelet, man. Right? And then he says, who wants to volunteer? Yeah. And the crowd got a lot quieter. And eventually, his manager, Harry, volunteers. And this is a picture of that moment. Harry is on his back as they walk across 1,300 feet. And right before Blondini thrusts him on his back and takes the first step, he says, Harry, here's what you need to know. You are now me. I am with you. I have you. Where I lean, you lean. Where I go, you go. If you follow me, I will get you there. Just lean all the way. Give me all of your weight, and I'll get you to the other side. Because, as you can imagine, having someone on your back suspended 200 feet up in the air while 70, 80 mile per hour winds are gusting up from underneath your feet, if they start to fight and kick, that's going to get tricky. And Blondini is able to walk Harry all the way to the other side. And in the midst of Blondini carrying Harry, there's actually a glimpse of what David understood in the passage that gave him the ability to detox from the restlessness that the practices themselves would not have had the power to do. And it's all embedded in the psalm. I just highlighted a little bit as we read through it one more time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So in grad school, I was able to take Hebrew. Um, my Hebrew professor was trained by one of the leading Hebrew scholars in the world, who, uh, Professor Michael Fox, who taught at the University of Wisconsin. And so I learned Hebrew from one of the kind of protégés of the great Hebrew teacher of the 1900s. And I remember one time my professor um, pulling out Psalm 23 and saying, hey, let's talk about the Hebrew of this passage. And he's working through it, and there's so much in this passage in the way David writes, because David was really an incredible, gifted writer and songwriter. And you can see it in the Hebrew. But the way that the passage is actually written is that this passage, this phrase in the Hebrew that David writes at the time is the central core passage of the entire thing. Everything in that passage is pointed back to it. There's a structure that the Psalm 23 is written in that was popular in um, the writing style, you know, so when we think of songs and poems, we think rhyming, right? That's the common thing that we do. In ancient Israel and Jewish poetry, rhyming was not a thing, okay? Um, they wrote with different structures, and I won't get you, I won't get into all of the structure stuff, but just know that the structure that he writes with is intended to accentuate this one phrase, you are with me. And you, you see it, it keeps going. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head. My cup overflows. And then he puts this one other phrase in there that you can miss the weight of it. And both the English and without the context, 
He says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. The word follow me is actually not follow me. The, way, the word that David writes is pursues me, chases me, hunts me down. It's like, don't know, David, don't you know it's, it's Absalom who's chasing you, pursuing you, and hunting you down. He's the one who's out to get you. And he said, no, 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 no. It's God's goodness and God's love. That's the thing that's chasing me, that's out to get me, that's pursuing me. I turn to look behind me. It's not Absalom that's gaining on me. It's God's goodness and his love. And he ends this passage with a profound heaviness out of that insight. And he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David has such a confidence and conviction in what and who is really guiding his life that David can say, my best days are still in front of me. They're still ahead of me forever. That's heavy. (coughs) It's because David understood this, that the one with me is greater than the what that's against me. The one with me, the he, the he, the he, the he that he just kept highlighting through that psalm. The one whose presence is central to the promises that David stands with confidence in. The one who's pursuing him, chasing after him with his goodness and love, is greater than the what that's against me. No matter what that what is, I mean, David, in very modern language, simply says that even when I stand on the mountain of the best moments of life, you are with me. And even when I walk through the valley of life's lowest moments, you are with me. Even when I'm in places of prosperity, you are with me. When I'm in places of poverty, you are with me. When I am lonely and in despair, you are with me. When I'm surrounded by people who care, you are with me. There is no place that I can go where you are not with me, even when it is good, even when it is bad, even when it is hard, even when it is easy, even when I do not know, even when I am confident and certain it's a go, even when it is chaos and confusion, even when it is clarity, you are with me. The one with me is greater than the what that's against me. And that ultimately is what allows us to have a soul detox from restlessness. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. Father, thank you for the way that you inspired David in the midst of a low moment, a heavy moment, to write this psalm that can speak to us in this moment, in the last few years of what we're navigating as a a, a species and what we're even navigating individually, personally, in the midst of our life and grief and pain and loss and confusion and uncertainty. So thank you, Father. 
for the way that this psalm speaks to us today. Thank you for that gift that you gave David, that you gave us. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today. And uh, we want to close out today kind of just allowing that to, to kind of rest a little bit and allow that to kind of seep and creep in and just a reminder of God's greatness and his goodness and his love and his presence because right, it, it can be easy to forget that the promise of the Christian faith is that God is with us. And I think sometimes as adults, we kind of pass over that like it's not that significant, but it is. And, here's, and it's one of those examples, quite honestly, where our kids are smarter than us. When your three-year-old version of you was smarter than the 35-year-old version of you. Because when you were small, and I see this all the time with my son, and you got hurt, you fell down, you felt afraid or scared or lonely. You didn't try to fix the problem. You didn't look for a solution. You went looking for a person. Because you understood climbing up into mama's lap or sitting and being held by dad could make you feel better even if your world felt like it was falling apart. It's like three-year-old you understood that simple, profound insight that David had that the one who is with us is greater. That there's something deeply comforting and profoundly healing and personally sustaining about being in the presence of someone who is greater than you, who knows you, and who loves you. And I had a phenomenal mom. But you know what I have? And what you have? We have an even better God whose demonstration of pursuit we celebrated last week with what Jesus did on the cross and how he broke out of a grave for you and for me. And that's the one that's great, that's inviting us to experience and to be a part. And so in the midst of this song today, I want to encourage you. For some of you, maybe you just need to kind of sit in his lap. You just need to kind of crawl up and say, God, here's what I'm grieving. Here's what I'm weeping. Here's what I'm confused by. Here's what I'm seeing in my kids. I just need you to know. I just need to, I, I need you to comfort me so I can comfort them. God, here's my uncertainties. And here's the cool part. This is so bold, but this is so true. He's here. Hope is alive. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And he actually gives comfort. And he actually gives strength. And you can experience it. Even if you're not sure you believe in him, he's still gracious enough to give it to you even when you're not sure he's even there. And so I want to invite you to stand. And our team's going to lead us in a song. And let's just feel his arms and his love wrap around us.